For those of you that might be visiting, every Lent we do a sermon series here, and we happen to be doing the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. And so last week we talked about, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this week we're going to talk about, today you will be with me in paradise. And it's interesting because if you think about it, many people who have gone to church most of their life, many Christians, are very familiar with the scene of three crosses. You know what I mean by three crosses, right? You've seen Easter cards, you've seen them possibly when you're driving down the road on the hillside, and you know what those three crosses stand for. At least I presume you do. You've got a thief, you've got a thief, and you've got an innocent person who's accused. Accused basically of treason because he claimed to be king. And it's interesting because when you think about the thieves, what do you typically think about? Because we really don't know much about them. And yet there they were, hanging on the cross next to Jesus. One on one side, one on the other side. And it always struck me when I read, you know, the two thieves that were on the cross next to Jesus, I think about That's kind of a harsh punishment for people that stole something. I don't know if you've ever thought that. They were thieves. We're not told anything else about it, that they were possibly trying to steal something and killed someone, or whether they were trying to steal something from the king. We don't know how serious the thievery was. But to be killed for being a thief, that's something that's beyond a lot of our comprehension, and yet there they were. And they were in this place next to Jesus and basically without hope. They were helpless and they were hopeless. And they're hanging on the cross, all three of them. And so if you read Mark's gospel, we're reading from Luke today, but if you read Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel being the shortest of the three gospels, if you were only to read that gospel, because it's so short and Mark was trying to get the basic message out there, You're not told the same story that you're told in Luke. That's why it's good to read all the Gospels together. Because Mark basically tells you there's these two thieves hanging next to Jesus and they're mocking him. And that's all you're told. And apparently they were both mocking Jesus early on. They probably joined in with the crowds and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the soldiers. But something changed. And that's where Luke's gospel comes into the picture. Because what changed was one of the thieves' perspective in his heart. Something happened in those hours being on the cross. And we're not sure exactly what happened. Maybe he had come to know about Jesus by listening to some people. Or maybe the stories that had caught up to understanding because they met this man. We don't know. We don't know what they knew, what they experienced. And even the words that we have, we're not sure it's all the words because Jesus could have been talking to them, making an offer to them, sharing with them. And they had the opportunity to observe Jesus during that time as well. 
We don't know everything that happened. But one thing we do know, because of the first word that we talked about last week, they heard the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. And they were probably caught totally off guard by that. First of all, that Jesus would be praying at that point. But he wasn't praying for himself. That as they heard the taunts and possibly joined in the mocking and the taunts early on, you've saved others, save yourself, come down from the cross. Which would have defeated the purpose for why he was there. But instead of doing what he could have done and what he was taunted about doing, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And that prayer obviously impacted at least the first thief. And we never know about the other one, though it appears it didn't have an impact. But these two thieves... Now, I don't know if you think like this. I sometimes think like this. It's just the way my mind works. Because I love people and I like to get to know their story. So I'm thinking to myself, who are these guys? Not only what did they do, but what's their family background? What decisions did they make in life? Do they have wives, children? Was anybody there around the cross like Jesus had? Because Jesus had his mom and his aunt and some women and John the Apostle. Did these guys have anybody? Did they even come? You know, we see bumper stickers and Something in the window that says, no regrets. I guarantee you at that moment they had regrets. In the very least, the regret that we all share, getting caught. They had regrets. Because they were hanging on a cross. And they knew they were dying. And crucifixion is a excruciating way to die, which is why it was eventually outlawed. It was painful. It was awful. You're gasping for breath. You're trying to hold yourself up. Maybe they had regrets about decisions that they made along the way about following someone. We don't know. But along with the regrets... I also guarantee you they were angry. Otherwise, they wouldn't be mocking Jesus. Why would you feel the need to mock someone when you're hanging on a cross? Because they're angry. And once again, we don't know why they might be angry. They might be angry at the Roman judicial system. They might be angry at their family upbringing, their parents. They might be angry that they got bad breaks in life. The the deck of cards. The hand that they held. But they probably had anger because they were doing what I refer to as kicking the dog. You know when you have a bad day at work? And you come through the door and you just want to let out your anger and either you yell at your spouse or you yell at your children or you kick the dog? People don't do that today because pets are a little different than they were back in the day. But I mean, 
when you take your anger out on someone else, and that's what they were doing. They were lashing out at Jesus. And we don't know exactly what they were saying, but I'm sure they shared in some of what was going on. And my guess is, because they heard of some of the taunts that were coming Jesus' way, part of the mocking, part of the taunts, was they wanted something to happen that would fix their situation. How often in life, when we're experiencing trials and troubles and challenges or consequences, we want someone to fix it for us. You know the old line, getting your ticket fixed? We want some, someone to fix it for us. I remember early in my life beginning to come to grips with this. When I was six years old, and my little sister Beth Ann, who some of you have heard me talk about before, who's mentally handicapped, she also couldn't walk at that point. And therefore, we were very limited as a family of what we were doing during those days. And we decided as a family, my mom and dad did, and we went along to a shrine because that's the kind of thing that my family believed in. So we went to this shrine in Emmonsburg, Maryland. And it was her namesake, Elizabeth Ann Seton. And so we went to the shrine, and we drank some water, and we lit a candle, and we prayed for my little sister, and then we took her home. She started walking. And the doctors could not explain why she started walking. But I remember vividly praying, okay, Lord, You only fixed part of the problem here. She's still, as we used to say back then, mentally retarded. And I was disappointed, and I was angry, and I continued to be embarrassed for years. But I loved my little sister, so I was in a bit of a tension. And as I began to mature... I remember what I learned from the Lord was this is not about Beth. Beth is fine. She turned 59 two weeks ago. I talk to her every Sunday, by the way. I was the one that needed to change. I was the one that needed to grow. I needed to learn from her character. I needed to have my character changed. And it caused me to grow softer and more compassionate. It taught me somewhat patience. You know, we all have a problem with that. It taught me to trust the Lord. And it probably blessed me in my faith. Because I saw the Lord work, but it was His way, not my way. And when we want something fixed... Oftentimes we want it our way. And that's what we saw with the two thieves. The one wanted it his way, and the other one initially wanted it his way, but then turned to Jesus. See, it's the type of Messiah that we want. It's the type of Savior that we want. Do we want the Savior that does everything we expect when we want it. See, many times what people are really all about is comfort and wealth and success and power and control. 
I mean, that's why Judas, as John tells us in John chapter 12, his gospel, that Judas used to steal from the purse, the common purse that the apostles and Jesus shared together. Why? He wanted money. So when he got to Jerusalem and Jesus wasn't coming through as the kind of Messiah that he wanted to have, the worldly powerful Messiah, the one that was going to bring them success and elevate their position and make them comfortable and powerful, he sold them out for money. And that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees that wanted another kind of Messiah, the one that was going to affirm them and do things their way and once again provide comfort and power and success and money. Instead, he turned out to be a humble Messiah. That didn't fit their picture. See, oftentimes when we want something fixed, we want it our way, and we want it in a worldly way. And the Lord is not about that. He's about your soul. He's about your life. So we've got these two thieves hanging on a cross. And one of them continues to reject Jesus. Continues to mock him. Given the opportunity, he wants the worldly fix. And he's not offered the worldly fixed. And we don't know everything that Jesus said to this guy or both of these guys. We just don't know. But apparently he was unrepentant. In fact, what we have is the two responses that we can respond to Jesus with. Either the rejection, the Messiah that we want and we don't get, so we stay angry. Or we have this repentant thief who over time, observing Jesus through the passion, the suffering, the cross, Calvary, hanging there. What is going on around? Hearing his words of forgiveness and says, there's something about this guy. There's something about who he is and what he's doing. And he doesn't have total comprehension, by the way. There's not total understanding there. Not with a couple hours hanging on a cross. You're not going to get the whole picture. But he began to see enough. He began to experience enough. And he knew he needed hope. Because he was helpless and he was hopeless. And Jesus in his words. Probably some of the most beautiful words in scripture. Today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. You will be with me in paradise today. Now, I know there's different beliefs about what happens when we die. People believe that, you know, you're asleep forever until Jesus returns. Some people, but we're not going to get into the different belief systems, okay? Premillennial, postmillennial, ah, millennial. post-pre-tribulation. 
I believe in pan-millennialism. It's all going to pan out in the end. But what Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What he's saying is when you die, the next thing you're going to be conscious of is being with me in paradise. See, because when God created everything, Genesis 1, he didn't just create the stuff and the animals and the people and the plants. He created time because God lives in eternity. And he created the ways that we mark time. So when the man was dying and eventually would die, that would be the today for eternity. With Jesus for eternity. That's the today. With me. With him. With the person, the Savior, the God who provides perfect peace and joy and love. That as we read in Revelation, there's no pain or sorrow. There's no coronavirus. It's perfect joy and peace. Salvation. With me. Jesus said to his apostles when he was questioned, Lord, we don't know the, the way. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way. See, we think today, we listen to the commercials and they want to tell you the way. And when you're looking for a way, you might use Google Maps or Waze. But we're talking about direction for life and direction in death and direction for eternity. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus was promising. You will be with me. Come and see. Paradise. The Garden of Eden restored. Paradise. No pain. No struggle. That's what he promises. With him. For all eternity. That's the gift. And we can't hardly imagine that. And can you imagine a guy who is hanging on a cross... Helpless and hopeless, hearing those words. Now he had hope that this is not the end of his life. This is not the end of the story. See, when we live for this world and worldly fixes and the things of this world, we miss it. We miss it. Because this is not it. We get glimpses of paradise. And it's probably not the ones with the beer commercials. We get glimpses of paradise. Because we experience love and joy and peace. But this is not it. And as we age, we realize this body's not made for eternity anyway. It's a gift. It's a promise. It's a gift. It comes by faith. 
It's not something you earn or deserve. You know, when I was younger and I was being raised in the church, I thought it was about me earning it. And when I was a teenager, I was like a little Pharisee. I was earning my way. And I'll never forget the question that an older woman asked me one time, Greg, what what can you add to the cross of Christ for your salvation? And it dawned on me, nothing. All I can do is respond. And that's all this thief could do is respond. To trust. To receive the gift of faith. That's all we have. That's all we have. Because he's our savior. He's our justification. He's the gift for eternal life. You know, there was a movement in the mid to late 1700s called the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening transformed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives, and changed a lot of bad practices in culture in America and in Britain. And there were two primary preachers during the Great Awakening. One was George Whitfield and the other was John Wesley. George Whitfield apparently had an incredible voice. He could preach, and these were open-air preachers, by the way. He could preach to, they counted over 30,000 at one of the events. This is without amplification. No mic system. That amazes me, by the way. Over 30,000 people. One of the guys that used to come out and listen to him preach was Ben Franklin. And someone said to Ben Franklin at one point, why do you come out and listen to Woodfield? You don't believe what he's preaching. And Franklin's response was, he does. He does. Jesus knew. And eventually the one thief figured it out. He does. He knows. And Woodfield was preaching one time in Philadelphia. I think it was Philadelphia. That he saw a man walking to the gallows. And he stopped his sermon and pointed to the man and he said, but for the grace of God, there go I. And that's true for all of us. It's God's grace. And when when you begin to minimalize your sin, that you're basically a good person, you've missed it. Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus on the cross for you. It's about the gift. And that's why Paul would write, wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the hope. There's the hope. The hope for a changed life. The hope for eternity. That's the hope. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, unless you have a sense of that of your life. Unless you understand this gift is for you. He died for you. That we are the thief on the cross. On one side or the other. And he's offering us paradise. 
Today, you will be with me in paradise. Have you received the gift? Do you trust him for your hope? For eternal life, beginning now. Let's pray. Every moment in this life, we are growing closer to our physical death. Just like the thief on the cross. And every moment, through faith, we have the opportunity to be closer to Jesus and closer to paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Lord God, I pray this day that we would all understand the gift. As much as that thief that turned to you, whose heart was changed. Lord, that we would understand the gift that you've given through your son Jesus. The gift of salvation and eternal life, the gift of love and joy and peace amidst the challenges and the pain and struggles of this life. Because this world and our lives are passing. And as much as we often strive for earthly fixes, worldly the gift is Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit to have our lives and the goal of our lives transformed Lord we pray this day that you would send your Holy Spirit upon all of us especially those who have never known this that they might come to that truth that understanding that Jesus offers paradise through his death and by the power of his resurrection. And we pray this in his precious name, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.